stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Today's reading is Luke 11, verses 37 through 54, which is on page 870 and 871 in the Blue Bibles. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So my name is Dave Nelson. I'm one of the pastors here. And, and I preach probably about once every four to six weeks, and I'm finding as I age, it's getting harder and harder every time to see my notes. And so let's open up with prayer once again, and we're going to pray that I can see this and that this would be a blessing to you. And so pray with me. Father, thank you so much, Lord, as has been prayed earlier. Lord, you love us. Lord, you love us with an undying and forever and never-ending love. And we are absolutely secure in that love and affection. Your word says nothing can separate us from the love of God. No matter, no matter what it may be, nothing can. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him give us all things? And Lord, I pray that this morning you would grant us insight into your word together and we would see what a wonderful God you are. We would be reminded of the things we already know, but remind us again, Lord, as we need constant reminding. In Jesus' name, amen. 
What is the biggest danger facing the church today? Is it sexual immorality? Is it gender confusion? Critical race theory? Or something else? False religions? Is it doctrinal? If you would have asked the people of Jesus' day what was the biggest problem and thing facing the church, they probably would have said political. They would have said Roman occupation. They would have probably said taxes are high. We're not free. Maybe they would have talked about morality because they were surrounded by this pagan influence all around them. Bible commentator Philip Ryken, when looking at this passage, he made the following statement, and I think it's just as applicable to first century Christians as it is today. And here's, here's what he said. He said, the gravest danger comes from theologically informed, religiously active, morally conservative people whose hearts are far from God. Nothing is deadlier to the life of true godliness than spiritual hypocrisy. Isn't that a powerful statement? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the problem the church faces today is not outside its walls. It's right here inside the church, here in the pulpit, there in the pews, and it's called spiritual hypocrisy. Our section this morning that we're looking at begins and ends with a meal. Jesus was invited to sit down and have a meal, and then that's, that's in verse 37, and then verse 53, he leaves. And so it all takes place right there. Now, now quick background, he, this Pharisee invites him to dinner. And a Pharisee was simply, um, it's, it comes from a Hebrew word, and it means separated ones. And they had a particularly strong interest in outward religious acts, like tithing, religious purity rites, and Sabbath observance. So they were all about religiosity. And, and this Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner. This entire event takes place. I mean, it could take place on a stage. It, it's all set at the dinner table. Everything happens. There's nothing supernatural. There's no feeding of the 5,000, raising of the dead. Nothing like that. It's just a conversation around the dinner table. But it is so pertinent, and it's, it's, it's critical that we listen up. This is for us. It's not how bad they are out there. It's what are the problems facing us today, here and right now. So look with me at verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. When this Pharisee called Jesus, it says Jesus went with him and dined with him. And that is very good news. Whether it was a tax collector or a Pharisee, when someone invited Jesus, he came. Isn't that good news? Jesus comes when invited. Praise God for his accessibility. He was approachable then, and he's approachable today. So this man invited him to dinner, and Jesus came. Look with me at verse 38. And, and, and by the way, when he came, he did not wash his hands. Now, this isn't about physical cleanliness 
We know it's a good idea to wash your hands, but this was actually a ceremonial ritual that they would go through. They would go through this elaborate process of washing their hands, and it really did nothing to remove dirt. It was there to remove some sort of moral impurity, some sort of contamination, spiritual contamination. And so they put together this rite, and you just you went through it, because if you didn't, Maybe the foods that you ate would then be contaminated. They would go into you and become contaminated, and they would contaminate your worship. They would contaminate your prayers, everything. And so they had this ritual, and Jesus real, took it for what it really was. This is nonsense. And so Jesus refused to participate in this man-made ritual. Well, in verse 38, look with me. It says, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And, and so what that means, astonished, that's a really strong word. And it means he was disgusted, offended by what Jesus did. And, and he condemned him in his mind. And so what does Jesus do? Well, look with me at verse 39 to 41. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, exclamation point. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus was offended, and, and he offended this man twice. First, he didn't wash his hands, and then, remember, this is the guy who invited him to lunch. And then he turns to him and he says, you fools. This is intense language. He called him a fool. You see, Jesus is furious. And he's furious about people, especially church leaders, who care more about how they appear on the outside to others than who they are on the inside. On the outside, these Pharisees looked really good, really righteous. But on the inside, Jesus says it right here, they were full of greed and wickedness. Greed and wickedness. Now, keep in mind, Jesus did not approach everybody this way. A lot of times, people on the outside of the church have this vision of just being condemned all the time. And this is not how Jesus approached everyone, but this is how he approached those religious leaders on this, during this dinner time. And it is, I think, sometimes what he wants us to hear within the church. He typically reserved the strongest language for religious elites, people who think they have it all together. The Bible says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, these are very specific accusations. Keep that in mind as well. Jesus doesn't just say, well, I hate the lot of you, and so good riddance. But Jesus points out very specific things that they've done wrong so that they have something to repent of, and that is great mercy. He's going to go into six woes, and, and these woes are the strongest possible denunciations. He is saying, woe to you. And so hear it, it's strong language. 
It's indignation, but it also involves regret and a plea to change. And so there's so much mercy right here in these woes. He's saying, this is a very specific thing that you've done wrong. It's bad, but in that is a warning. Please turn, it's not too late. And, and I believe that's his spirit with us this morning. So woe number one, look with me at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees. So not only did he offend by not washing his hands, now he called him a fool and he's not done yet. And so woe number one, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe, for those of you who don't know, that's giving 10% of, of your income, for, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done. It's not wrong to tithe, it's good. You should have done these things, but without neglecting the others. You see, the, the Pharisees cared more about their extra-biblical rules. They took tithing to a whole new extent, and they cared more about that than they did about weightier matters, things that matter more to God. For example, under Old Testament law, Numbers 18, they were to give a tenth of their gross income to support worship and the work of God. So that's, that's embedded in the Word of God. The command to give centered on loving God and loving your neighbor. It was to serve and to help and to worship, but they made it all about themselves. In fact, when they gave, they would sound a trumpet so that everybody could see what they were giving. It was, it was all a matter of showing off. It was a matter of being noticed. The command centered on loving God, but for them, they would go to the extent of tithing, even taking the herbs out of their garden and, and picking off 10%, just to make sure, and, sh and showing off for everybody else. So they really got this one right. But no, they didn't. They gave a tenth so that they could keep the other 90% to themselves. They gave the tenth meticulously so they could say, mine, with everything else. They were greedy. In their heart of hearts, they were more interested about their financial well-being than they were about serving God and loving others. One person put it this way, they were not defending the weak, protecting the poor, welcoming strangers, helping widows, adopting orphans, or doing any of the things that the Bible calls justice. They gave a tenth so that they could cling to the 90. That makes sense. That was woe number one. Woe number two, verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees craved attention and recognition. They loved recognition. They loved being seen and praised. They craved respect at church and in the public. They wanted people to notice what they were doing for the Lord and to be impressed. Glad that doesn't affect me. They lived for the praise of man. Mark 10, the disciples, it wasn't just the Pharisees, it was the disciples. Jesus' inner circle of people. There was a, a, a story in Mark 10 where James and John were arguing about who were the greatest. And they, and they said, oh, Jesus, grant that we may sit at your right hand 
and at your left in your glory to receive glory with you that's what their souls longed for and and jesus said ah oh, you don't understand that's what the gentiles are like that's what unbelievers are like they want glory for themselves and they seek to lord it over other people they want to climb to the highest position and jesus said that it should not be like that among you but whoever wants to be great among you let him become your servant stoop down take the lowest place the most insignificant place and serve that's the heart of jesus these guys couldn't be more different they wanted glory for themselves number three woe number three verse 44 woe to you for you are like unmarked graves that people and and people walk over them without knowing it according to the law in the bible anyone who touched an un and a grave or walked over a grave would be unclean for seven days and so as a result in jerusalem and the area around there in israel they would carefully whitewash tombs so that they would be noticeable and so that you wouldn't inadvertently walk over them and they did that especially around feasts like the passover when people from out of town would be coming in and and it, all that contamination people would contaminate one another and, and if you just pause and think about the fact that Jesus is sitting, he's been invited to dinner at their house. This is what Jesus thinks about hypocrisy. And he says the most offensive thing he could have ever said to him. He says, he says, you are like unmarked graves. And when you come and talk contact with people, you contaminate them. You Pharisees, the ones that have given their lives to help the people and to feed the people and, and to point them toward the way, they were actually like unmarked graves. I mean, just picture what's inside a grave, decomposing, rotting flesh. And he said, that's what you're like. You're like that. And you ruin everybody who comes in contact with you. Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, we can externally do all the right things, but we will ultimately impart what is within. We leave our fingerprints on each other's souls for Christ or for unbelief. What we ultimately impart to other people is not just what we look like on the outside. It's the very core of who we are. So just a, a brief review. The, care, the Pharisees cared more about the opinion of others than the opinion of God. Woe, number one, they cared more about their rules than God's rules. Woe, number two, they, they craved attention and respect and recognition. Woe, number three, they harmed everybody they came in contact with. Here they thought they were doing good, but they were actually harming people. Now, the Pharisees are people who had reached the pinnacle of religious success. These are the celebrities within the church. And yet they were the most spiritually dangerous people in all of Israel. And that's what Jesus points out. You could just see him pointing the finger at them. After pronouncing three woes on the Pharisees, a lawyer questioned him. And that we got to understand about lawyers. It's been said before, but if you're new, lawyers, it's not the same as lawyers today. Lawyers were people who studied the Word of God and told other people what they needed to believe and how to understand it. And so 
and this is not a perfect illustration, but, but I would say that Pharisees were kind of like the respected members of the church, the lay elders and the leading citizens, while the lawyers were like Bible scholars and theologians. They were the seminary professors and the pastors. And, and the lawyer turns to him, and, and he's, you can just see the wheels turning. Hey, back in verse 29, you said to the crowds that they were an evil generation. I'm willing to agree with that. Yeah, they are evil. And man, now you're, you're getting closer to home. Now you're picking on the Pharisees. And um, I, I might even be willing to agree with that. But, but you know, when you say that, Jesus, you're getting really close to us. And surely we are above all of this. But then what does Jesus do? Verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Woe, number four. And Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Do you know how easy that is to do? To proclaim biblical truth and say, You must obey while at the same time secretly ignoring everything? It happens all the time. And, and Jesus calls them out on it. They don't even see it. But Jesus says, woe to you also. The lawyers had this really horrible problem. They thought they were above the law. And, and I'll just give you one example. The, the Bible in Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There's something so special about the Sabbath day. That's the day in which God rested. This is a side note. We celebrate it on Sunday today because that's the day when Jesus rested from his work. And that's the new creation. But, but they had all these rules about the Sabbath. And they, and, they, and they said, I mean, the Bible just says, remember it, keep it holy. And it says a couple more things. But here's what they did. And it's recorded in the Mishnah. And, and I would have mentioned about the hand-washing ceremony from the Mishnah, and oh my gosh, it's insane. But let me just read about what they did. And see, So what they did is they said, here's what the Bible says. Well, now we're going to take this oral tradition and we're going to write it down, and here's what we're going to teach you. And, and this is what you must do. So they were, they were turning people's attention from the simplicity of God's word to their own. And here's what it says. A man may not carry an object in his right hand or in his left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder. However, he may carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow or in his ear. I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> or in his hair or his wallet, providing it's carried downwards or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoes, or in his sandal. I don't even understand what that means. But what they did is they said, yes, here's the biblical command, but we're going we're gonna to make this so complicated for you that you have to depend on us. And by the way, this is going to require a lot of work on your part, but we know all the loopholes. And so they, they set it up in such a way that they didn't have to obey it themselves. Kind of like the IRS. You, you know that if the more you know about tax code, the less you will pay in taxes, for sure. It pays to know. 
And so people hire attorneys and accountants. And, and I'm not saying we should just try to pay every penny. You know, there are legitimate things that, you know, we, you know be smart. But, but what they did with the law of God is they, they so overcomplicated it that people were overwhelmed by the burden of it, and they didn't carry one part of it. They knew all the loopholes, and so they did whatever they wanted on the Sabbath. They did whatever they wanted. They were wicked, just like Jesus said, you're full of greed and wickedness, and that's what was going on on the inside. They had job security. They, they complicated things, and people needed them. If you knew the rules, you could find whatever loopholes you needed to do whatever you wanted or go wherever you wanted on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus was calling them out on this. So he gets to woe number five, verses 47 and 48. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Now, this seems a little bit obscure, but, but what it was is they built fancy tombs to honor the prophets who were killed by their fathers. Why were the prophets killed by their fathers? Because they pointed their finger at them and said, you are in sin, and you need to repent. Fathers didn't like it, so they killed them. That's a brief Old Testament history. And, and so Jesus is saying, you're just like your fathers. And they're saying, what are you talking about? We're building these tombs and we're honoring these prophets that our fathers killed. So we're not like them at all. We love those prophets. But you see, they had no problem with dead prophets. They loved dead prophets who weren't speaking to them. What they had a problem with was live prophets who said, here's your issue. They didn't want anything to do with living prophets. And so they built tombs for the dead prophets, but when a living prophet came along, they killed them. And, and, and ultimately, well, let me read, look with me at verse 49 to 51. Jesus said, therefore also the wisdom of God said, and he's not referring to a particular book. This isn't in the Bible, but this is just the wisdom of God, just good godly wisdom. It says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So he he gives them, he, he talks about the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the way things are laid out, that's like saying, you know, all the prophets, A to Z. It, it actually is A to Z in English, but, but in the Hebrew Bible, it also is. And, and so he's saying, he's just lumping all the prophets together. You know, the prophets from Abel to Zechariah? Yeah, they killed them, but you're guilty. Now, why could, how, how could he lay this? on them and he could do it really simply because they were about to kill the very person whom all the prophets pointed to in all of their message all of their call toward repentance and faith they were pointing to the one who would come jesus and these guys were were doing far worse than all of their fathers by condemning the very person that 
the prophets spoke about. In fact, they didn't just condemn him, but they said, his blood be on us and our children. And Jesus says, woe to you. The lawyers were convinced God's word applied to other people, but not to them. Woe number six, verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hindered those who were entering. How did they do that? They did that through their teaching. They set so many extra biblical rules up that they made it impossible for other people to enter into the, enter into the kingdom of God. They were literally condemning people to hell along with themselves. Now, as I was going through this this week, I, I was overwhelmed by how applicable this is today. And I thought, I thought, my goodness, you know, how do I apply this? And I could just see areas in my own life. And, and I, didn't, I didn't want to just go through and just, and just spell out how this applies for each one of us. I'm really relying on the Spirit of God who's been at work in my life showing me. But I want to just sum up everything he said right now. And that's, go back to verse 39. This is a good summary of their issues. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees and lawyers, religious people, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. They want to look good on the outside, but inside it's just not as pretty. And, and Jesus said, You fools. Now, here's the big question. How did they respond? Because this was a plea. This wasn't just an outright condemnation. There's no hope for you. But this was a plea. Jesus was pleading with them. Listen, just like Jonah, even though Jonah hated the Ninevites, the, the, the statement, God will judge this generation, was a plea from God. And they responded. They repented. And God spared them. This was a plea. But but look at verse 53 and 54. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They refused to respond. They were so secure in their self-righteousness that when Jesus pointed the finger at them, they would not listen. And they went after him with even more fervency. So let me ask this, which is what I ask myself all week. What would Jesus say to you if he came to your house for dinner? Understand that hypocrisy and greed and these inner matters of the heart are really hard to discern. And it's, it's kind of like cream cheese on the face. We are the last person to see it. Because we are pros at self-justification. If you're anything like me, you're really good at spotting the good things in your life and turning a blind eye to the bad things. You're really good about seeing what you're doing on the outside, but what are the motives driving those actions? It's, it's, it's really hard to see that. Do you know that some of our most righteous acts are driven by selfish motives? And Jesus is calling them out. 
Well, if Jesus were calling you out today, what would you say? Here's some, some areas where he called me out, and this is just a few. I want to be really careful because it's embarrassing. But, you know, I care far too much about what people think of me. I often have a double standard. Do you know this last week, I looked up at my phone at one point to tell Susie she's spending too much time on her phone, and she doesn't even have a phone plan. You ever done that? You have, do, you, do you see? I mean, I see how damaging this can be for them, and I really want to help them, my children. But have you, have you looked recently at your phone usage for the last week? I hate it when that report comes, unless it says it's down, and then, I'm, then I feel good about myself. Um, when I was raising small kids, I often pointed to the rules that would make my life easier, that would make me feel better, that would make life more convenient for me, rather than the things that God really cares about. You know, I, I sometimes made mountains out of molehills. Remember Moses when he was in the desert and he, God calls him to strike the rock and he strikes it and God gives water to these children of Israel, who at one point he calls his children, and, and, and they're complaining, they're grumpy, and he does that, God gives them water. And then that, later on in that journey, and this, this is recorded in, in oh, I think, Numbers, Moses comes and, and they're grumbling again about water, and their attitude is, give us water, we would have been better off in Egypt. And, and Moses turns to God and he says, God, you know, basically, why do I have to raise these kids? And, and God says, speak to the rock. But Moses, does, he doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes it and he says, you rebels, here you go. How often do we present that image of God to our children? God is gracious. He's loving. He's merciful. He's compassionate. I mean, you could go on and on. How often do I think about money more than God? How often do I worry and stress when God says, trust me, you can trust me, even while I'm on the phone encouraging someone else that they can trust him? Trust him, come on. If I had that problem, I'd trust him. I just have this little problem, and it's, but that's different. I want to put my best foot forward, hiding the rest. Have you ever been talking and then and then you stop and you, you look and you just make sure nobody, at least not people that you don't want, like, man, did anybody hear that? Oh, nobody did. Okay, Whew. God's right there the whole time. We fall short. I, I want to say, is the church full of hypocrites? <laughs> yes, it is. But how are we to respond? The problem isn't that we are sinners. Yes, that is a problem. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what are we to do? That's that's where the rubber meets the road. What do we do about that hypocrisy in our lives? The word of God gives us a simple remedy, and these Pharisees should have seen it. You know that Jesus pronounces six woes on the Pharisees, and they should have known. That's an imperfect number, right? It needs to be complete. You need a period on the end. And that period is a seventh woe. And that's a woe where they call it on themselves and say, woe is me. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. And they should have known that. 
he was directly pointing at Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, when the, proverb, or when the, when the prophet, speaking for God, gives the people of Israel six woes. He goes right down, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, six times. And then, and then in chapter 6 of Isaiah, he sees God. He gets this image of God and his holiness. And when he sees God in his moral perfection, he realizes, I'm the problem. And his seventh woe is, woe is me. And you know what happens? He didn't have to do penance. He didn't have to do all these ceremonial rituals to cleanse himself. All he had to do was say, woe is me. And you know what God did? Took a coal from the altar. That's all he could do at that time. This altar that pictured what Jesus was going to do in chapter 53. It's coming. It's all right there in Isaiah. Jesus was going to come and take the penalty for our sins in full. He didn't have to do it himself. He just had to recognize the sin. It's kind of like a PET scan. If you're not willing to recognize the cancer that's there, you're not going to get the treatment. So what does God call us to do right here this morning? Just admit it. Own it. I am a hypocrite. But I want to grow. And I'm sorry. Jesus does not like hypocrisy. Look at how extreme his language is. So with me, would you just say, God, woe is me. Have mercy on me. Every time that hypocrisy shows its ugly head, what do you do? You just say, oh, God, have mercy on me. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you that he became sin for me. He was bruised in my place. He was afflicted. He was wounded for me. That's what they should have seen. Do you see that this morning? Do you see that you fall short? Do you see that the problem is not out there? The problem is right here in you and in me. And as we deal with that, oh, to see God work amongst us in even greater ways. Oh, God, help us to see it. I'm going to end with this quote. It's in Living the Cross-Centered Life. And I love it. It's such a good response. And this, this woman wrote in and she said, under the teaching of God's word, she began to realize that there was a problem deeper than my outward expressions of sin. I was learning about the sin in my heart and the motives at the root. I vividly remember driving down the road one day and God opening my eyes to see that I'm a wretched sinner to the very core of my being. In that second, I thought, what am I to do? I instantly, or instantly, I was clearly aware that this is why Jesus Christ came to die. This is the very reason why he came to die on the cross, for me. I laughed out loud and said, my God, only you could show me what a wretched sinner I am and make it the greatest news I've ever heard. The truth of Jesus' sacrifice became more real to me than ever before. Do you know when you look at your, your sin square in the face, that can do one of two things. One, you can just say, not me. I'm not like that. That's not me. And you can be proud and arrogant. 
Another way is you can just be driven to despair. And you can just say, oh, there's no hope. I, oh, I give up. Both of those are Both of those are wrong. <laughs> Don't respond in either way. The third way is, oh, God, there's the sin. That's a reminder that I need a Savior. But there is a Savior. He's come. He's paid it in full. He's the one who said, it is finished. So, oh, God, I've got this reminder of my sin, and I don't want anything to do with it. But there it is. I'm reminded. And in this reminder, I'm reminded what a wonderful Savior I have. And what a wonderful God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A God who said, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not through him give us all things? Let's, let's pray. Let's thank God that he is that kind of God. Lord, I thank you that you're not the kind of God that just leaves us wallowing in our sin as if everything is okay when it's really not. But you're a God who loves us too much for that. And you issue warnings. And Lord, I thank you that your warnings don't always come in the woe-to-you form. Lord, I thank you for how gently you approached the Samaritan woman at the well. Lord, you never said, woe is you for her sexual immorality. You never said, woe is you for her moving from one man to another and, and finally living with a guy. She felt the shame. She would go to the well by herself and avoid all other people. And Lord, you, you did not heap on additional shame, but you just welcomed her to the spring of water that would well up within her with everlasting water. Oh God, would you be that well of living water for us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do the Lord's Supper at this point, and, and I don't know if any of you have this book, The Good News We Almost Forgot.